Almighty God, we ask your blessing on our study. We pray, Father, that you will continue to bless us to grow in the ways of Jesus, that we can become more like Jesus, that we can draw closer to you during this difficult time in our country. We pray for our government leaders, our spiritual leaders. We pray, Father, that you will continue to hold our hands during this time in Jesus' name. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 11, the Bible says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you've watched our previous video, our previous video from Hebrews 4, there you will see we learned that the main thing under consideration in Hebrews 4 is the rest that remains for God's people, Christians. We learned in Hebrews chapter 4 that the rest that remains for the people of God is heaven. It is heaven. It is not the rest that Israel experienced on the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. It's not the seventh day of the week rest, and it's also not a physical rest on a physical piece of land like the land of Israel or Palestine today. It's not rest on a small piece of land that connects three continents and is going to be destroyed and burnt up when the Lord comes back. No, the rest that awaits us as the people of God is a rest that is eternal. It is a rest that is spiritual. It is a rest that has been prepared by Jesus himself. It is a rest that will enable us to be as close to God as possible. The rest that awaits us as the people of God is heaven. It is rest in the spiritual promised land. And the Hebrew writer says that we must be diligent to enter that rest. According to what you find in verse number 12, the Bible says that if we're going to enter into the rest that awaits us, then we got to learn from the mistakes of Israel in the Old Testament. Unlike them, we must believe and obey the word of God. We must believe and obey that word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The people of Israel did not believe and obey the word of God, and that is why they did not enter into their rest. And we got to make sure we learn from their mistake. We must believe and obey the living and active word of God, and we also got to fear God. According to verse 13, we got to fear the one that knows everything about us. We have to fear the one that knows our thoughts, that knows the intentions of our hearts, that will ultimately judge us on the basis of the standard found in his word. We must be diligent to enter into our rest. That's the main thing we considered in Hebrews chapter 4, but in this particular video, we want to now talk about Hebrews chapter 5. 
We want to talk about Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to suggest that the context for Hebrews chapter 5 actually begins in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse number 14. The chapter break here really does us a disservice. So in order to get the whole context of what's being talked about in chapter 5, let me read to you very quickly Hebrews 4 and verse number 14. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14, the Hebrew writer, after talking about God and how all things are opened and laid bare to the eyes of God, in verse 14 he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. But I hope you can see there from those three verses we just read is here in the context of these verses, the Hebrew writer returns back to a recurring theme that is found all throughout this book. In fact, it may be the main subject that is addressed in the book of Hebrews, and that is the priesthood of Jesus. The priesthood of Jesus. Here in these verses, we see that not only is Jesus superior to the Old Testament prophets and to angels, as we learned in Hebrews chapter 1. And not only is he superior to Moses, as we learned in chapter 3, and not only is he superior to Joshua, as we learned in chapter 4, but he is also superior to Aaron. His priesthood is also superior to, to the priesthood of Aaron that was found under the Old Covenant. The point the Hebrew writer is making each time as he brings up the, the priesthood of Jesus is Jesus is a far more superior high priest than even Aaron was. He's a better high priest than Aaron. And the question you may ask is why? Why is Jesus us more superior high priest than Aaron. Well, we learn some reasons why in verses 14 through 16, these verses we just read. First, notice how Jesus is a more superior priest and high priest than Aaron because unlike Aaron, Jesus passed through the heavens. Aaron did not pass through the heavens, but Jesus actually passed through the heavens. Jesus actually left from heaven and he came to this earth. Jesus is also the Son of God. That's something else verse 14 says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Aaron was a great high priest, but he wasn't the Son of God. He hasn't been with God the Father from eternity. He wasn't involved in creating the world. He has not been exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus passed through the heavens. Jesus is the Son of God. And then thirdly, Jesus can truly sympathize with our weaknesses. That was one of the main responsibilities of the high priest was to be able to sympathize with the weaknesses of the people he's ministering to. And Jesus fits that qualification at the highest level. Jesus 
can sympathize with our weaknesses even, even better than Aaron could for the people of Israel. Why? Well, because he lived as both God and man. Jesus is God. There's no doubt about that. He's deity. But he came into this world as a man. He lived as one of us. And because he lived as a man for 33 years, that enabled him to be able to relate to and sympathize with every struggle that we as men and women go through in our lives. Jesus went through everything that we go through. He faced every struggle that we faced. And so let me just ask you, what struggles have you faced in your life? What struggles have you gone through? During your time here on this earth, have you battled temptation? I think we've all battled temptation, right? We've all had times when, when we've been tempted to commit sin. Well, well, Jesus also was tempted, the Bible says. We can read about a time when the devil brought three temptations before Jesus. That's Matthew chapter 4. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, we learned that Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. And so if you struggle with temptation, if you face temptation, you need to understand your Savior, Jesus, he also went through the same thing. Are you also grieving the loss of a loved one? I'm grieving the loss of a loved one. And I'm thankful I have a high priest who can sympathize with me on that. He also grieved loved ones. We can read about a time when Jesus grieved with Mary and Martha over the death of Lazarus. Jesus wept over that. Jesus can sympathize with that struggle we face. Are you facing poverty? Are you trying to figure out how you're going to get money during the tough time in our economy so you can take care of, our fam of your family? Well, 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 Jesus also went through that. Jesus said that there was a time when the Son of Man had no place to even lay, to lay his head. He said, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests. The Son of Man has no way, nowhere to lay his head. Jesus went through poverty. And had you had to hurt inside because maybe you knew that somebody that you love died lost and separated from God because they refused to obey the gospel. Maybe you know of somebody in your life who, who clearly died in sin, and you have to live with that. Well, guess what? Jesus went through that too. Jesus had 12 apostles when he was here on this earth. And he kept them all except one, Judas. Judas betrayed him. Judas killed himself and he died lost. In fact, we know that because Jesus even said that the person who betrayed him, it would be better if that person wasn't even born. That hurt Jesus. Jesus doesn't want anybody to die lost. And yet Judas did. So he can sympathize with that, us on that as well. Jesus can truly sympathize with every struggle and with every weakness we go through in our lives. And that qualifies him to be our high priest. That qualifies him to be the one that we can go through to draw near to God and receive grace and help in a time of need because of his sacrifice on the cross and because of the perfect life he lived and because he was tempted in all things and went through every thing that we went through and yet did not sin. Jesus is perfectly qualified to be our high priest. And so the priesthood of Jesus is under consideration here 
in the context, and that continues on in chapter 5. And so let me now read to you Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10, in keeping with the theme or the subject of the priesthood of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 5, in verse number 1, he says, For, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered and have been made perfect. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot of good stuff there in those verses. A lot of meaty subjects being talked about. And this is why I, I said, going back to the beginning of the class, that in order to really appreciate a lot of the things found in the book of Hebrews, you really have to have some background on the way things were done under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament scriptures. It really helps you be able to appreciate a lot of these things. And so I'm going to try to simplify this as much as possible so that we all can try to try to glean some lessons from this, but let's start with the first four verses, okay? Notice how in the first four verses of this unit we just read, the writer talks about the qualifications for a high priest. Did you notice that? He talks about the qualifications of a high priest. He talks about even the work of the high priest. In verse number one, we see that the work of, a, of the high priest was different than the work of a prophet, if you remember, under the Old Covenant, you had priests, you had prophets. You had priests and prophets. Now, what was the prophet's responsibility? Well, the prophet's responsibility was to communicate to God's people, to communicate with people, and to minister to people on the behalf of God. The prophet served on God's behalf. He communicated on the behalf of God, but the priest was different. Or as the prophet ministered on God's behalf to God's people, the priest ministered to God on behalf of the people. He communicated to God on behalf of the people. He offered sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. We, we see this when it comes to the sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place either in the tabernacle or the temple, and he would offer sacrifices for himself first because he was a sinner. He also came to temptations as a man, so he offers sacrifices for himself, but then he also sacrifices 
for the people. He offers sacrifice to God so that God will forgive the sins of the people. And so the prophet ministered to the people and spoke to the people on behalf of God. But the priest, he ministered to God, offered sacrifices and gifts to God on behalf of God's people. He was a go-between in that sense. He was, he had a very important work. In fact, the high priest was the main priest in Israel. And so what were the qualifications? Well, there are a lot of several things the Old Testament lays out that qualified a man to be a priest and then even a high priest. But here in these verses, the Hebrew writer brings up two very specific things. First, in, in verse number one, and really verses one through three, he talks about how the high priest, one of the qualifications he had to meet is he had to be taken from among men. The idea there is he had to be human. He had to be a man. He had to be a man because he had to be able to relate to the people that he ministered to God on their behalf. He had to be able to sympathize with their weaknesses, be able to sympathize with their struggles. He had to be able to, to relate to the people. So he had to be taken from among men. Being taken from among men and going through the struggles of men, that enabled him to be able to truly sympathize with them. That enabled him to be able to sympathize with their, their struggles. He had to be taken from among men, but secondly, not only must he be taken from among men, he also had to be called by God. God had to call him. That's verse number four. It says, and no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Notice how the people did not choose the high priest. God chose the high priest. God chose Aaron to be a high priest, and he chose every other man after Aaron to be high priest. God appointed the high priest. He had to be taken from among men. He had to be a man, a human. And he also had to be appointed by God. In those verses, that's really the main thing that the writer is emphasizing, these two qualifications that a high priest must meet. And then in verses 5 through 10, the point there is very simple. Jesus met all of those qualifications. He met both of those qualifications to be the high priest for God's people under the new covenant. Jesus was a man. He came into the world as both God and man. And he was also appointed by God. He also was specifically chosen by his father to be a high priest. In fact, in bringing that point up, when you look at verses 5 and 6, the Hebrew writer quotes from two Old Testament passages. He quotes a passage in the second psalm, the second psalm that says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The point he's making there in this context is God chose his only begotten son to be the high priest under the new covenant. My only begotten son, I've chosen you for this. And then he also quotes from Psalm 110. In verse number 6, he says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That is a quote from Psalm 10. And there, 
in the context, the Hebrew writer is saying that not only did God choose Jesus to be a high priest, but he chose him to have a priesthood that is in the order of Melchizedek. He chose him to have a priesthood that was similar and comparable to the priesthood of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And someone says, well, who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, we're going to talk more about Melchizedek later, believe me. He's brought up quite a bit in the book of Hebrews. And so in these first couple of verses, in this context, when talking about how Jesus met the qualifications to be a high priest for us, he brings up the fact that first Jesus was picked by God to be the high priest. Just like the high priest was picked by God in the Old Testament, Jesus was picked, was picked by God to be a high priest under the new covenant. And then in verses 7 through 10, he goes back to the humanity of Jesus. He, he, he makes the point that just like the high priest under the old law was a man, he could sympathize and relate to the struggles of people. Jesus can do the same thing, in fact, even at a higher level for God's people under the new covenant. In verse number seven, he talks about in the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh. The point there is Jesus came into the world with flesh. He came into the world as a man as both God and a human. In the days of his flesh, he then says he prayed to God. Verse 7 again, in the days of his flesh, as he lived as a man, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. He even cried when he prayed to God. He cried to the one who was able to save him from death. He cried to his father. He prayed loud to his father. That's what Jesus did in his flesh. If you've ever cried in your prayers, prayed loud to God, and begged God to hear you, guess what? Your Savior did it first. Jesus did that while he was on the earth. In fact, I believe that in this context, the Hebrew writer may be harking back to a very specific incident in the life of Jesus that's found in Matthew 26. If you remember in Matthew 26, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and a few years ago I was blessed to travel to Israel and actually go to the Garden of Gethsemane and as I sat in the Garden of Gethsemane, I couldn't help but think about Matthew 26. I couldn't help but think about that time when not long before Judas would show up with the guards to arrest Jesus because Judas betrayed Jesus, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Before Judas arrived with those guards, those Jewish guards, Jesus prayed to his father three separate times in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed intensely to his father. He, he, he prayed one time falling on his face. He was in such agony because he knew what was going to happen to him at the cross, that his sweat was like drops of blood. He was in intense agony. And in, in one of his prayers, he prayed to his father, and he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup, and the cup there is a reference to the cup of suffering the suffering of the cross, the agony of the cross. 
Jesus said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not, not as my will, but, but let your will be done. Jesus there specifically asked his father to take the cup of suffering from him. He, is, he, he specifically said to God, essentially, that God, if there's another way to execute this plan, to redeem men without me having to go through the cross, let it be done. I pray, Father, take this cup from me, but, but ultimately let your will be done. That's what Jesus prayed. He was in intense agony when he prayed that. In verse 7, the end of verse 7, the Bible says God the Father heard that prayer. God heard the prayer of Jesus. He heard his groans. He heard his cries. The question, though, is how did God respond to those groans? How did God the Father respond to those cries? How did God the Father respond to the prayer request of Jesus to take this cup of suffering away from me? How did the Father respond to the prayer? Well, obviously, God responded to the prayer with a no. No, I'm not going to take the cup of suffering away. No, there's no other way. You have to go through with this. This is my will. You must go through the you must go to the cross. You must go through the cross. God responded to Jesus' prayer request with a no. And keep in mind Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. He has the closest relationship with the Father that anyone could ever possibly have. And if God would say no, to the prayer request of Jesus, what do you think he's going to do to us from time to time? And we're sinners. And we violated his law. and We've been unholy at times in our lives. If God would say no to the sinless and perfect Savior of the world when it came to a prayer request, then we should understand that that same thing is going to happen to us. It's all about God's will. It's all about the will of God. And I like how when God did respond to that prayer with a no and Jesus had to go through the cross, Jesus didn't get angry with God. Jesus didn't shake his fist at the Father. Jesus submitted to the Father's will. Even though God responded to his prayer request with a no. So we got to understand that there are going to be three different ways in which God responds to our prayer request. Sometimes it's going to be yes. Yes, I'll give this to you. Sometimes it's going to be no. This is not what is best for you. This is not my will. And then other times it's going to be yes, but not right now. You're not ready for this blessing right now in your life. I, because I know you better than you know yourself. And so Jesus said, take the cup of suffering from me. He was in intense agony. He wanted it removed. But it was God's will that Jesus suffered. It was God's will that Jesus experienced the horrors of the cross. It was God's will that Jesus be betrayed by Judas. And that Jesus be spit on and go through those corrupt trials. And that he be beaten and slapped around and mocked. Have a crown of thorns beat into his head. Bear his cross to Golgotha. Hang between two criminals. Have nails put in his hands and his feet and suffer to his last breath. That was the will of God and ultimately that was God's will. 
because that was the only way that we could be saved. It was God's will that his son suffered so that many could be saved. Jesus experienced suffering. He experienced agony. He experienced a great deal of stress and that those experiences perfectly qualifies him to be our high priest. We see that in verses 8 through 10. In verses 8 through 10, he talks about the sufferings of Jesus and gives us more reason why Jesus had to suffer and go through those things to be our high priest. You see, through his sufferings, in verse 8, the writer says he learned obedience. Jesus, and what a just a remarkable thing to try to comprehend and fathom. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Through his sufferings, according to verse 9, he was made perfect, not made sinless. Jesus was sinless before he suffered. This, the word perfect here doesn't mean that the sufferings of Jesus made him, made him sinless. It means it made him a complete savior. It, mean, it means it made him perfectly qualified to be the one who would be the source of eternal life to those who followed God. Through his sufferings, he was made a perfect savior. And through his sufferings, he was also qualified to be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Through his sufferings, Jesus became qualified to be appointed by God to be our high priest. Jesus needed to suffer and go through the things he went through, not just so we could be saved, but also so he could be qualified to be our high priest. So in verse number 10, the writer mentions this Melchizedek person. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a very interesting Old Testament character. In case you didn't know, Melchizedek is, was a real person. He's mentioned in the Old Testament, but he's only mentioned two times in the Old Testament. His life, we only get a glimpse of his life one time, and that's in Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, this guy Melchizedek just kind of pops up onto the scene and it, and it takes place in the life of Abraham. Abraham was a faithful man of God in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we find Abraham. We find Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a, a priest and, and he was also a king. He held two offices. And, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed him. And that's all we hear about really concerning Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He's a mysterious Bible character. We really don't know of his origin, who his parents were, where he came from. We don't know a lot of details concerning his life. He's only mentioned one time. And yet, he seems to be a very important Bible character because he's mentioned all throughout the book of Hebrews. This guy who's only mentioned one time in the book of Genesis. He's mentioned nine times in the book of Hebrews. He's mentioned all over the place in the book of Hebrews. And he's mentioned specifically to teach important lessons about Jesus. He's mentioned all over the place in Hebrews to teach important lessons about the priesthood of Jesus. 
Melchizedek is not mentioned a lot in the Old Testament, but he's mentioned a lot in the New Testament, and he's mentioned a lot to teach lessons about Jesus. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. He has a priesthood that is comparable to the priesthood of this man that Abraham paid tithes to in the book of Genesis. Now, we're going to talk more about Melchizedek as we continue on in the next few weeks. But let me just say this. As the Hebrew writer brings up Melchizedek here, and as he begins talking about Melchizedek, he kind of just stops. He pauses. And he just gets angry. He's talking about Melchizedek, and he's passionate about Melchizedek. But he just has to stop and rebuke these people he's writing to. He just has to stop and blast them for a moment. And let's read that and say a few words about it, and then we're going to be done. After talking about how God appointed Jesus to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, in verse 11 of Hebrews 5, it says concerning him, concerning Melchizedek, we have much more to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. A few observations I want to make about these verses, and that's going to be this study. First, in verse 11, the Hebrew writer makes the point that Yes, he's talking about Melchizedek, and he's trying to give some teaching about how Jesus is comparable to Melchizedek, but he says, look, this is a difficult subject to understand. This is a meaty subject concerning Melchizedek, and he says, I want to say some things about this, and I want to say a lot about it, but I fear you're not going to be able to handle it. I fear you Hebrew Christians are not going to be able to handle this meaty subject about the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Jesus, and the reason you're not going to be able to handle it is because you become dull of hearing. You you have become dull in your hearing of the word of God. He goes on to explain in the next verse what he means by that when he says these Christians had not been growing properly in the Lord. They had not been growing spiritually. They had not been growing in their knowledge. They had not been growing in their understanding of the word of God. He says that by this time, they should have been able to handle a meaty subject like this. By this time, they should have been teachers of God's word, but instead of becoming teachers, they needed somebody to teach them. They needed somebody to teach them the elementary principles of the oracles of God. He says that even though they should have been on the meat of God's word by this time, they were still on the milk. They were not growing. The question is, are we growing? Are we growing? And when I say are we growing, I'm not asking how long have we been Christians. I'm not saying have we been Christians 30 years or 40 years or 50 years. Just because somebody's been a Christian for a long time, that doesn't mean they've been growing in the Lord. There are some people who've been Christians for 30, 40 years, and all they do is fill a pew. They couldn't tell you that the 12 names of the apostles. 
So just because someone's been a Christian a long time doesn't mean you, you're growing. What shows that somebody's growing is their understanding of God's word. Are they continuing to learn God's word? Are they continuing to get more and more off milk and on the meat? And not only do they understand God's word, but are they applying God's word? Are they applying it to their lives? That's the point he makes in verse, in verse number 14 when he says, But solid food is for the mature. Who are the mature? Those who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The true, spiritually mature Christians are those who not only know the word of God, study the word of God, understand the word of God, but they apply the word of God. They apply the biblical principles into their lives. Hebrew writer says that's the test of real growth. And unfortunately, many of these Christians failed the test. They were not growing in their knowledge. And, and they were not at a point where they had trained their senses to be able to discern good behavior from evil behavior. And so let's make sure we learn from their mistake. The Hebrew writer's rebuking these Christians here. And that shows me that there are times when a gospel preacher He's got to not, not only encourage people with the scriptures, but there are times when he has to rebuke people with the scriptures. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4? Preach the word, be ready in season and, and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great, with great patience. There are times when a preacher must rebuke people when they're not behaving and growing properly. Now the Hebrew writer is going to continue with this rebuke in chapter 6. But for now, in this study, just take home that we are a blessed people if we're Christians because we have Jesus as our high priest. We have Jesus, the Son of God, as our high priest, someone who came into the world as God and man. He went through everything that we experienced, and he can truly sympathize in our weaknesses and help us in our struggles. And so in our next video, we're going to move on to Hebrews 6. We're going to continue reading and studying this rebuke that this, the Hebrew writer is giving these Christians. But I hope this lesson will bless you and encourage you. And, and I hope that God will continue to be with us all as we continue to try to hopefully at some point get back to normal and be able to assemble with our congregations. May God's hand of blessing continue to be with us.